On the third day of the Global Health Summit, nine of Taiwan's diplomatic allies made an appeal for Taiwan to be included. What's more, Japan and the Czech Republic, though not formal allies, also voiced support for Taiwan's participation. Taiwan has not been invited to the WHA for six consecutive years now due to Chinese intervention. Speaking in Taipei on Wednesday, President Tsai Ing-wen said the exclusion would not shake Taiwan's resolve to join the international community. On Tuesday afternoon, President Tsai Ing-wen visited Taipei Veterans General Hospital to thank frontline workers. In her speech, she had some words for the World Health Organization. Taiwan has talent, technology and a wealth of experience combating the pandemic and would absolutely be able to contribute to global disease prevention. I also want to emphasize that the WHO's actions will not shake Taiwan's determination to take part in the global community. President Tsai underscored Taiwan's determination to join global organizations. Under Chinese intervention, Taiwan was once again left out of the World Health Assembly this year. On Tuesday, British newspaper The Daily Telegraph published an op-ed by Taiwan Health Minister Chen Shih-chung titled, Why Does the WHO Continue to Exclude Taiwan? In the article, Chen highlights Taiwan's successes in keeping COVID out through the use of digital technology and border controls. It says that with Omicron ravaging the world, Taiwan has shifted to a new Taiwan model that focuses on eliminating severe infections while managing mild cases to limit the impact of COVID on daily life. Chen also expressed regret that Taiwan has been excluded from the WHA for five years due to political pressure. He called on the WHO to let Taiwan participate in the WHA so that nobody is left behind in global health efforts. The minister wrote a letter of protest, which we have sent to the WHO. Deputy Health Minister Li Li Fen is currently leading a delegation in Geneva. She has delivered a letter of protest written by Chen to the WHO. Taiwan's efforts to be heard have met a warm reception in the global community. All of us have to be on board. This is the reason why the Czech Republic fully supports Taiwan to be granted observer status to the World Health Assembly. Health, as well as peace, are in a liable right. We should refer to good examples of regions that successfully tackled COVID-19 in terms of public health response, such as Taiwan. We should not make any geographical vacuums created by leaving specific regions behind. Japan and the Czech Republic are not official allies of Taiwan, but both nations' representatives have joined the chorus that's advocating for Taiwan at the WHA. Several Taiwan lawmakers are in Geneva campaigning for Taiwan's participation in the WHA. Besides advocating for Taiwan, the lawmakers have seen firsthand how the Swiss are living with COVID. Very few people wear masks in public or observe social distancing, they say. One lawmaker looks forward to Taiwan making the same return to normal life. People enjoy a meal al fresco in Geneva. It's just like any other day. Walking down the street, there's nary a face mask in sight, and not many are observing social distancing. Lawmaker Wang Waiyu, who is currently in Geneva, says the change took a little getting used to. 
After I landed, it felt a little weird because even at the airport, most people aren't wearing masks anymore. But we're still a little anxious, so we still wear masks. We felt the anxiety, especially at a diplomatic banquet on the first day. We were all in very close quarters, and it was a little noisy, so we all chatted very close to each other. We're a little nervous, especially because the next day we heard that someone at the banquet had tested positive for COVID. But Geneva is still offering PCR tests to the public. At this PCR test site, staff told us that during the peak of the recent wave, people had to line up for two hours to get a PCR test. Rapid tests, which are in high demand in Taiwan, are available at many pharmacies in Switzerland. Have you ever used that before? No, never ever. Switzerland's most recent COVID wave peaked in mid-March. Since then, case numbers have been on a continual decline. Switzerland's vaccine coverage is not as high as Taiwan's, but they decided to live with COVID back in April, so they eliminated many of the infection control regulations. Over here and in Europe, countries have downgraded COVID. They no longer consider it a pandemic. They treat it as if it were the common cold, something like the seasonal flu. For a long time, Taiwan had a zero-COVID approach, so I think many people are worried about opening up. If the rate of severe infections goes down and vaccine coverage is high, then I think it's time to open up and go back to life as it was before. The lawmaker is in Geneva to promote Taiwan's cause at the WHA. She says the trip has also been a learning opportunity as she's getting to see how Switzerland is living with COVID. The CECC reported nearly 90,000 local cases and a new high of 76 COVID-related deaths on Wednesday. Starting tomorrow, the general public will be able to use a positive rapid test to get an official COVID diagnosis from a doctor. They will no longer need to undergo a PCR test to confirm their rapid test outcome. Let's hear from the CECC. Generally speaking, in a given area, if the PCR positivity rate is less than 10%, then these test outcomes will be less than 90% consistent with rapid test outcomes. Why didn't we implement this policy in April when the PCR positivity rate hit 14%? It's because the rates differed greatly from region to region. We did a pilot run for this policy for people 65 and older, people who live in rural areas, as well as people in quarantine, isolation or self-health management. We ran it for people who met these major conditions. As we've gradually worked out the details, the legal conditions for this policy have also matured, so the time is right. In most parts of the country, the PCR positivity rate is now high enough for there to be an 80% or 90% consistency with rapid test outcomes. So we want to announce that starting May 26, all positive rapid tests that are confirmed by a doctor will be counted as a COVID diagnosis. Individuals can still get a PCR test if their positive rapid test is disputed by a physician. PCR testing will also remain available to COVID patients in hospitals and people in high-risk groups. Taiwan has begun offering the Pfizer COVID vaccine for children aged 5 to 11. 
A little over 40,000 doses will be administered in the first wave. Across the nation, parents were seen braving the rain with their small children waiting hours in line to get a shot. Wednesday was the first day of Pfizer vaccination for children aged 5 to 11. By 8 o'clock in the morning, there was already a long line of families standing outside this clinic, all waiting for Pfizer's child vaccine. Some arrived as early as 4 a.m. With COVID hitting schools nationwide, parents are eager to get their kids protected. Yeah, I'm afraid he'll get infected because a classmate of his was diagnosed. We're number 38. It's estimated that there will be 40 slots. I got here at 6.50. Number one got here at 4 o'clock. For this first wave of administration, 403,000 doses of Pfizer's child vaccine were distributed nationwide. New Taipei was allocated the most doses at 57,000, followed by Taichung with 56,000 doses and Taipei with 54,000 doses. Here inside the vaccination site, young children wait in line with health insurance cards clutched in hand. Once it's their turn, the little ones roll up their sleeves with alacrity. Because my family said that if I don't get the vaccine, I can't go outside. So it's a relief to finally be getting my shot. According to Dr. Huang Liming, Pfizer's side effects in children are similar to those seen in adults. These include pain and redness at the injection site and a mild fever. The doctor says there are two situations that warrant concern. One is anaphylactic shock, which could show up as difficulty breathing and a pale complexion. Children could also develop myocarditis, so they should monitor their heart rate and manage their exercise levels for a week after vaccination. The doctor says it takes at least two weeks for the vaccine to produce antibodies, so kids should still be careful at school in the meantime. Of course, there are some risks, especially since the first vaccine dose takes longer to produce antibodies. Two weeks is a reasonable estimate. For some people, it could take three to four weeks. Pfizer's child vaccine is available at last. Many parents are breathing a sigh of relief at being able to protect their children from the virus. As COVID continues to spread, the number of people who've recovered from the disease is growing too. A doctor recently began a movement on Facebook to bring together folks who've recovered from COVID. They share their stories and encourage others to stay calm in the face of the virus. Most people make a full recovery after a brush with the disease. Mrs. Lee holds her five-month-old baby and greets the camera happily. She, her husband, and their three children all caught COVID. After self-isolating, they made a full recovery and life is now back to normal. I was more worried about this little baby because he was the second to get symptoms, a fever. We gave him some medicine for that, and luckily the fever went down. The other two kids were better after about three days and didn't have any special symptoms. Mrs. Lee shared with us the story of her family's recovery and even a happy photo of the kids eating ices once they were better. There are lots of people who've survived COVID quite safely like this, and many have joined the COVID Recovery Alliance created on Facebook by ICU doctor Chen Zhijing. They share recovery diaries and encourage readers not to get too anxious about the virus. The media likes to report on more serious cases and even deaths, but actually that is a very small proportion, only about 0.2%. 
so the majority of patients recover easily after infection. I think that expressing that perspective can make these people more visible, and it means that the public doesn't need to panic so much about the pandemic. Dr. Chen is also encouraging hospitality businesses and tourism companies to offer discounts to folk who have recovered from COVID. Businesses can get a boost in these trying times while giving their congratulations to people who've been through a tough time. At a Tokyo press conference on Tuesday, U.S. President Joe Biden was asked again if he would use military force to defend Taiwan from a Chinese attack. But just one day after he answered yes, Biden struck a very different tone. Instead of responding in the affirmative, he emphasized that there has been no change to the U.S.'s policy of strategic ambiguity. Political analysts say this long-standing policy means the U.S. will stay vague on whether or not it will send troops to defend Taiwan. Mr. President, is the policy of strategic ambiguity for Taiwan dead? I will. No. Could you no. At a press conference after the Quad Leaders Summit, U.S. President Joe Biden emphatically denied any change to the U.S.'s policy of strategic ambiguity toward Taiwan. Mr. President, do, would you send troops to um, Taiwan if China invaded? Our policy is not changed at all. I stated that when I made my statement yesterday. Biden insisted that there was no change in the U.S.'s Taiwan policy. When asked if he would send troops to defend Taiwan, Biden did not respond in the affirmative, even though he had done so just one day before to the same question. In Taiwan, scholars weighed in on Biden's apparent about-face. President Biden has already said three times that he would use force to defend Taiwan. The dichotomy between strategic ambiguity and strategic clarity is not quite able to define the current situation. We can't only look at Biden himself. We also need to look at the important aides around him. These include his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, who said once in an interview with a foreign policy journal that the U.S. would prevent change to Taiwan's status quo. Biden was quick to express his commitment to Taiwan's security. I think that's heartening. It's extremely positive and affirming. Then the executive branch issues statements to provide clarification or to add to Biden's comments. To some extent, this strategy is another form of strategic ambiguity. Of course, he doesn't want to stoke conflict or target anyone. Such an approach of unilaterally exerting pressure or fueling regional tensions is against his long-standing hope for multilateral cooperation and internationalism. Scholars say that Biden is a specialist in foreign affairs. They say he's long advocated for an approach of multilateralism in which conflict is replaced with communication. But because the stability of the Taiwan Strait is an important U.S. interest, Washington will absolutely respond if China makes a move using force, scholars say. If a military conflict occurs in Taiwan or the Taiwan Strait, the U.S. will certainly take immediate and practical actions. These actions may not only be for the security of Taiwan itself, but for maintaining stability, peace and sustainability in the region. That is a vital interest of the U.S. It's sometimes clear and sometimes vague. Biden's approach to Taiwan is keeping China guessing. 
The KMT has nominated lawmaker Jiang Wan'an for the year-end Taipei mayoral race. Jiang says that if elected, he'll address problems including the city's stagnant infrastructure and declining population. According to local media, Taipei Deputy Mayor Huang Shanshan could be a potential challenger to Jiang in the race. But on Wednesday, when asked if she planned to run, Huang had this to say. Taking care of our citizens is my job and my responsibility. Taipei has had more than 220,000 COVID cases, with 8,000 to 9,000 cases every day. From dawn to dusk, we are focusing on COVID, not on the local elections. Over the past few years, Taipei has been losing its population, and the income of our residents has kept shrinking. The infrastructure in this city is stagnant, and industry has been in a slump. What we need is not political rhetoric, but someone who can roll up his sleeves and get down to work. For its part, the DPP has yet to announce its nominee for the Taipei election. A party source said Thursday that elections aren't won by nominating early, and that for now, dealing with COVID is a higher priority. For some COVID patients, oxygen levels in the blood can drop dangerously low, causing damage to vital organs. One doctor shows us two breathing exercises that COVID patients can do to boost blood oxygen. These exercises can be done right at home, and they can provide quick temporary relief. But people who experience tightness or pain in the chest should still seek medical attention. He places a straw in his mouth, breathes in deep through his nose, and then exhales through the straw. After repeating this three times, Dr. Jiang Quinjun's blood oxygen reading goes up from 93 to 99%. This is how to use a straw to raise blood oxygen levels, he says. With the epidemic worsening and case counts hitting new highs, more and more people are entering home care for COVID. The doctor says that if your blood oxygen drops, you can use a straw to clear your lungs of stale air. Once you inhale fresh air, your blood oxygen level will increase. When you know that the remaining air in your lungs is low in oxygen, you can inhale 100 cubic centimeters of fresh air, which will then combine with the stale air in your lungs. By fully exhaling the air in your lungs, you will certainly improve your blood oxygen saturation. If you don't have a straw at hand, you can purse your lips into a circle and exhale in a similar way to whistling. This will achieve the same effect of increasing blood oxygen levels by 3 to 7 percent. But Jiang says these two breath exercises are only a short-term fix. If you experience chest tightness or chest pain, you should see a doctor as soon as possible. If your blood oxygen level drops below 90 percent, generally speaking, you'll start to experience some shortness of breath. If it drops below 80 percent, every working organ will start to be affected. The weight of the brain only makes up 2 to 3 percent of our total body weight, but the amount of oxygen it consumes is almost 20 percent. Once your brain is affected, you will start to lose consciousness. So when oxygen consumption, when your body oxygen levels are too low, that's extremely harmful to the human body. If you don't have a pulse oximeter at home, check the color of your fingernails. Nails that are dark purple are a sign of low oxygen levels. Other signs include an increased pulse rate, 
decreased urinary output, and tightness or pain in the chest. These all indicate that your condition has made a turn for the worse and that it's time to get medical attention.